It's Friday the 8th of April and this is the Hot Topic Podcast. Welcome to the Hot Topics Podcast by MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and I'm here to take you through the next 20 minutes or so, uh, updating us with the latest news, reviews and research relevant to us in primary care. The highlight of the podcast today is going to be at the end, and that's an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with a fantastic GP called Dipesh Gopal. He helped shed some light on issues around race and medicine, in particular when race has influenced research and guidelines, perhaps without any good justification. Lots of research to get through as well. In fact, there's three papers in the BJGP that I want to go through really quickly. There's also um, two really interesting papers on COVID, one in the BMJ about how long you stay at increased risk of acute complications such as VTE and stroke after COVID, and another paper in the New England Journal of Medicine shedding some light on whether it's worthwhile having a fourth COVID vaccine or not. First, let's think about the news. So the biggest story, of course, from the last few weeks has been the Ockenden report about the failings from the Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust's maternity services over the last 20 years. Over 100 stillbirths could have been prevented. There were 12 deaths of mothers which were preventable. Many children have been left with significant and permanent disability as a result of substandard care. Why is this relevant to us in general practice? Well, there's two main reasons why this happened. The first is being under-resourced. If you are under-resourced, you cannot provide high-quality care. You're desperately just trying to scrabble around, make it through to the end of the day, providing the basics that people need. And no one goes into healthcare for that. They go into healthcare to help people. No one wants to do a bad job. But when there's not enough hours in the day to to do what needs to be done, then corners get cut and patients suffer. I worry that this is going to happen in general practice as well. Maybe it's already happening in places. We've tried to prevent this by just working longer and longer hours above and beyond what we should be working. But it's unsustainable. Something eventually has to give. The BMA recently reiterated what they consider would be a safe number of patient contacts in a normal working day. And it's much lower than all of us are seeing. But we can't just change our days and start doing less. Patient demand is too high. What we need is we need additional resources. NHS England's answer, of course, is for PCNs to extend their working hours into evenings and the weekends. All this does is compound the problem with an overworked workforce. I worry that in another 10 or 20 years, Will will be looking back after another report has been published from the government about the failings in care in general practice. The second reason why these problems happened, highlighted in the report, was a failure of management. Good leadership is important for any business. That's true for every GP practice around the country. It's also true for every CCG or health board as well. And the report talked about an environment of hostility rather than collaboration, of bullying and fear. This is no way to help your staff be the best that they can be and provide good patient care. But most importantly, the management didn't listen. They didn't listen to what the problems were and they didn't respond to those problems. The CQC and the Royal College of ONG highlighted significant problems. They were ignored. Even more crucially, 
the patients were ignored, the women who were suffering as a result of the care that's been provided, who often were terrified that they had to go back to these maternity services, were just being ignored. This is something that we need to learn from, make sure that we keep on listening to our patients, doing our best to try and provide the service that they need. We are in a really tricky position at the moment. This British social, social attitude survey that got published last week showed the lowest level of public satisfaction in the NHS ever and general practice did not escape that. But years of under-resourcing have left it very difficult for us to respond, for us to change in any meaningful way. I think perhaps the best thing we can do is just keep on providing the best service that we can, listen to our patients when they say there's a problem, and we need to apply as much pressure as we can to politicians so that they start resourcing general practice in the way that it needs to be to meet the demands of modern healthcare. Okay, on to the research and hats off to the BJGP. They have got their timing absolutely spot on with this one. So this edition is all about women's health. The editorial is entitled Breaking the Bias in Women's Health. Given the findings of the Ockenden report, this couldn't be more timely. Our first paper examines whether there's an association between breast pain and development of breast cancer. The short answer is there is no association. So the incidence of breast cancer in women being referred to a breast clinic because of breast pain was 0.4%. That's about the same as the underlying population incidence of breast cancer. It sharply contrasts the incidence for other reasons women may have been referred, such as lumps or nipple symptoms, where the incidence was around 5%. Now, this isn't the first study to show this, but it probably is the largest and best conducted. So it was a prospective cohort study of consecutive women referred to breast cancer clinics over 12 months, and they had 10,000 or more than 10,000 women that were included. Most other studies have been retrospective and much, much smaller. They also did an economic analysis, and unsurprisingly, they showed that given the lack of association... Referral of women with breast pain to a breast clinic is an inefficient use of limited resources. They suggest that assessment, reassurance and initial management in primary care would be more appropriate. I think we can probably all get on board with that idea. There may still be women that we're worried about that we need to refer on. There may be women that are still very anxious and need to be referred on. But given that a third of referrals into breast clinic are for breast pain, if we can reduce the unnecessary referrals down, that's going to free up resources. And as we've already discussed with the Ockenden report, if you've got better resourcing, people get better care. Our second paper is a piece of qualitative work on non-antibiotic treatment of acute urinary tract infection. In the world of evidence-based medicine, qualitative research gets a bit of a rough ride. You don't ever see it in the BMJ or the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet, but it does have a vital role in trying to help us understand why patients react how they do. Why do they do what they do? Or why do they not do what we think they should be doing? A few years ago on the Hot Topics course, we were talking about research that shows you can um, successfully treat quite a significant proportion of urinary tract infections with simple analgesia instead of antibiotics. But of course, this is not a very well accepted or popular strategy amongst the general population. Most women will be phoning up for a prescription. 
So this piece of qualitative research aims to establish women's thoughts on and experience of non-antibiotic treatments for acute urinary tract infections. Through a series of semi-structured interviews, they found that many women would be open to trying non-antibiotic treatments first, given certain situations, so things like early illness, milder illness, no important upcoming engagements. And in those situations, they would be happy to try maybe a more natural alternative if that could effectively manage their symptoms. Most would have been happy to postpone antibiotics for up to three days, giving a a period of time to trial these alternatives. And I think this is really helpful information. First, I think it's fair to say, if you've already got a really nasty UTI, you probably do just want to have some antibiotics straight away. You don't want to be faffing around with something that may or may not be very effective. Hard to argue with that, but also we can open up the conversation so if things do seem milder, we could suggest a non-antibiotic alternative. The crucial thing here being having some kind of alternative to recommend, and it might be that that is simply simple analgesia. It might be that this is cystitis sachets that someone could get over the counter. It could be that it's cranberry tablets, which was something that seemed quite popular in the study as well. I definitely think this piece of research adds to our understanding on this subject. The last paper in the BJGP is not strictly a new piece of research, it's more of a systematic review on iron supplementation in women, the impact that the frequency has on both efficacy and tolerability. So we all know that iron tablets are not that easy to ingest, lots of people get GI side effects and there's a clear dose response. So when we used to suggest take ferrous fumarate three times a day most people just got ill with it and stopped so most of us would then suggest maybe doing it once a day but there's also this concept of alternate day dosing given that the level of iron in iron tablets is relatively high given the fact that the GI tract can only absorb a limited amount of iron perhaps alternate day dosing could work just as well be as efficacious but without the tolerability issues Turns out there's not loads of research in this area, but there are a few studies which allow us to understand the situation a little bit better. And interestingly, the alternate day dosing came out looking just as good as the consecutive day dosing. It didn't bring people's haemoglobin back up in quite the same rapid nature as more frequent dosing. And for for that, um, BD dosing seemed to be more effective than one day dosing. But over the course of and one to two months, they found that ultimately the efficacy was the same. Unsurprisingly, if you're taking iron less, then you had lower levels of GI side effects. So this is useful information. For the majority of our patients that don't have a really marked symptomatic anemia, then the alternate dosing over the course of a few months will gradually bring their haemoglobin back up to an appropriate level with the minimum amount of side effects. And so people are most likely to be able to complete that course. If someone has a more marked anemia, then going in at a more frequent dosing strategy would be more appropriate. Twice daily, for example, is more likely to bring up their haemoglobin rapidly, assuming they can stomach it for a couple of weeks. And then what you could do is just move back down to that alternate day dosing strategy to improve the tolerability. All right, it would not be a Hot Topics podcast without some piece of research on COVID. So let's have a look at two quick papers. So firstly, the BMJ. 
This was basically a cohort study following up a million people in Sweden who'd had COVID comparing them to 4 million matched controls. So they wanted to know how long an increased risk of DVT, PE and bleeding were, was maintained after COVID infection. We've all assumed that the risk is higher after COVID, but we haven't known how long that risk stays elevated. And the results showed it's a long time. So there was a significant increase in risk for 70 days for DVT, 110 days for PE and 60 days for bleeding. Unsurprisingly, your risk was higher if you had really severe COVID, also if you've got comorbidities. And they also found the risk was greater in the first wave than the second or third wave. Before we get super stressed about this, it's worth pointing out that the numbers of events were still very low, irrespective of whether you've had COVID or not. So, for example, the rates of DVT were zero. It happened in 0.01% of the population over the course of the 15 months they were being followed up. If you'd had COVID, it was 0.04%. Sure, that's four times the rate of if you hadn't had COVID, but it's still pretty low in the grand scheme of things. And for our community-based patients who hadn't been critically unwell, it's going to be uh, it's going to be even lower. The last piece of research is in the New England Journal of Medicine and this is particularly pertinent at the moment as many practices around the country are struggling to once again put on COVID vaccination clinics. This is data from Israel around whether the fourth dose of COVID vaccine actually adds any benefit or not. They compared the rates of COVID between people who had had three vaccines and four vaccines. And it's worth noting that this is very recent data. So this is looking at the effects of the Omicron variant. The number of cases of severe COVID was about 60% lower in the four dose group compared with the three dose group. And the rate of confirmed infection was around half. Interestingly, the protection against severe illness seems to continue longer than the protection against simply getting the virus. But also given the fact that there was a four-month period between the third dose and the fourth dose, it does look like we're seeing some drop-off in that protection against severe illness as well. It might be more complicated than that. It might be that as we have consecutive doses, each of those confirms longer-lasting immunity. We don't really know that yet. Right now, with this data, it suggests that having a fourth dose for those who are at higher risk certainly seems like a very reasonable approach. Okay, it's time for our interview now. Having grown up as a white kid in the southwest of England, where I think it's fair to say there's a significant lack of diversity, I've always felt a bit uncomfortable talking about race and ethnicity in medicine. I feel a bit like not only am I underqualified, I'm anti-qualified. The problem with this is it can lead to inaction and the perpetuation of maybe policies which do prejudice certain groups of people. So I am very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Dr. Depesh Gopal, who is going to help me out in this area where he's been very active over the last few years. Hi, Depesh. Could you perhaps just introduce yourself for the listeners? My name is Depesh, I'm a GP in North London and I'm a pre-PhD research fellow looking at cancer care and health inequalities at Queen Mary University of London. So the background to this is on the latest Hot Topics course, we have been talking about the NICE guidance for chronic kidney disease and in their updated guidance they have removed this historical correction factor for EGFR that had been recommended for um, people of black African or black Caribbean family origin. 
I don't know how many of us ever actually applied that correction factor, but it's always been there for as long as I can remember. But it seems that it is based on some pretty dubious data from a very long time ago, which probably has its basis in racism. And more recent data shows that if you did apply that correction factor, then you would probably be overestimating this population's EGFR by around 25%. That, of course, has the clinical implication that we may be missing important CKD. So this is just for CKD, but it begs the question, could race be inappropriately influencing other medical management? And this is where we bring Dipesh back in because he's been doing exactly that, examining the influence of race in the NICE hypertension guidelines. So Dipesh, how did you get interested in this? So I think so the journey started maybe a few years ago well, I read a book by Angela Saini, who's an engineer and a British science journalist. She wrote a book called Superior. It was an investigation of race in quite a broad scheme of things. She wrote a chapter about pharmacology. She examined sort of the evidence base for the blood pressure guideline. And what she highlighted was a couple of problems with the, the guidance. I'm sure we're all very familiar with the NICE hypertension guidelines, but just as a reminder, so if you're under 55 and you're not of black African or black Caribbean family origin, then you'd be recommended to have an ACE inhibitor or an ARB first line. If you are black African or African Caribbean family origin, then you'd be recommended a calcium channel blocker at any age. What was the rationale behind this then, Dipesh? We often think that ACE inhibitors will not be useful for people who have African or Caribbean heritage. And the reason behind that is that they do not respond adequately to renin modification. So ACE inhibitors won't be effective. Okay, so that's the theory. But what's happened in practice and what does the research show us then? When she looked at the data about what the difference in response was between people who have got African or Caribbean heritage and people who don't, there was only four to five millimetres of mercury difference in systolic blood pressure. It doesn't seem like a huge amount that we should discount people who are having certain medications. I suppose it's possible to argue it in either direction, isn't it? Um, I know some people would suggest that um, on a population level, a fall of four to five millimetres of mercury might be considered quite important. However, I know that there's other issues with the data, isn't there? Peeling back the actual data, if we look at the meta-analyses, most of these are US data. So US trials, where they've looked at differences, they haven't taken into consideration lots of confounders, like socioeconomic status, which you'd think probably would affect someone's blood pressure and the response to blood pressure medication. They haven't measured things like perceived stress, discrimination, which if we look at the US and the history of redlining, for example, different allocation of resources and the discrimination that happened, this would be significant factors. But these aren't measured because the methodology was just about designing very simplified studies. The other issue that's been raised is around genetics, isn't it? Historically, there's been this assumption that an individual looks different from another individual and therefore they must be genetically very different. The next logical thought is that medically they might need to be treated differently as well. Actually, the data shows that there is much more genetic variation between individuals within the same ethnic group than there is actually genetic diversity between different ethnicities or races. There's been a lot of discussion in this area, uh, a lot of chat that actually there is no genetic base for race. This is more of a social construct. It actually seems a very complicated question, doesn't it? What is race? And then, of course, who decides who's black? Is it the patient who self-identifies? What do we do if someone's got a black parent or a white parent, for example? What, what do we do if they've got a grandparent? 
or a distant great-great-great-grandparent. I know there's been argument about the potential risks of ACE inhibitors in black populations, specifically referencing the increased risk of angioedema. Do these arguments stack up? So when we look at that data, the most me- recent meta-analysis is about 17 years ago in the BMJ, and it compares about 55,000 black people, what they described as black people, and 133,000 non-black people. Again, mostly US data, so you question whether it's definitely applicable to our guidelines. And the risk of angioedema in the black population was 0.4%, 4-3%, and for non-black people was 0.13%. So you could say a relative risk of 3, so 3 times more likely, but the actual absolute list risk of 0.4 and 0.18 is pretty small overall. I guess it's also important to acknowledge that NICE is on its own in making these race-related hypertension recommendations. No other international guidelines do the same, do they? No, the international guidelines do not say that. And even in America, where you'd think that maybe they would be more interested in sort of impact of race, it's not there either. We're sort of the outlier here. So what can we do or what do we need to do with this information then? Well, if anyone's thinking about writing to NICE, I've already done it (laughs) twice. (laughs) So you don't need to tell them about it. They're well aware. And they said that they would consider this challenge to the data. I suppose the one thing I'd get people to think think about when it comes to race or ethnicity would be about the implications of it. So sometimes people say, oh, there's an increased risk of diabetes in South Asian people, for example. And we think, okay. But the problem is with that is there's a couple of implications for clinicians. We think it's genetic. We believe there's a genetic biological component in that population of whichever group is at risk of whatever disease. When you tell those communities, you know, you're at increased risk of whatever condition it is, then what happens is they can feel disempowered. They just think, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, whatever whatever I do, it's genetic, it's biological, nothing I do will change. So why bother intervening? And then I, I guess the other thing is the impact of working with different groups of people from ethnic minority backgrounds. Our classical treatments, what we think often from a Eurocentric viewpoint, so for example, classic one would be low carbohydrate diet for everyone with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, right? And that would be a great idea. However, for a lot of people from South Asian populations or from different ethnic backgrounds, carbohydrates make a huge part, a fundamental staple. So for example, taking out rice or, you know, flatbreads would be hugely problematic and to tell them you can't have that anymore isn't going to be the best solution we need to work with our communities thank you so much for joining us today Depesh. your insights have been fantastic really really interesting and uh, good luck with your future endeavors so we've thought about ckd and hypertension i wonder what other areas we might see race or ethnicity or gender bias do get in touch and let me know so you can get in contact with us via email. So hot topics at mbmedical.com by Twitter. So uh, at GP hot topics and Facebook as well. In the next podcast, I hope to have an interview with Dr. Artie Bansal, who is a GP in Yorkshire, but also the founder of the Greener Practice Network. So if you haven't come across Greener Practice yet, they've got a fabulous new website that's just been published greenerpractice.co.uk. It's got a huge amount of 
information and resources on there about how we can make general practice more sustainable and environmentally friendly. One of the big things that she's been doing recently has been focusing on optimising asthma care and thinking how we can achieve that whilst also helping with the environment. And we'll also be talking to Dr. Vina Argwal, who is a GP trainee currently doing a fellowship with NHS England and has instrumental in helping us set up our free um, hot topics clinic on optimizing asthma care which is coming up on the 17th of may so that's going to be a free evening webinar please do join us for that as ever we've got a huge number of courses coming up over the next two or three months remember if you subscribe to mb plus you can see all of them as part of that subscription And don't forget, you can carry on the conversation at GP Horizon. This is our free, secure forum for healthcare professionals. I'll be back in a few weeks. Enjoy Easter if you can. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.